Hey everyone, I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement and is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal is joined by Derek Woods, an assistant professor of media studies at the University of British Columbia. Today, the two discuss Derek's intersecting expertise in media studies and eco-technology, examining what he deems the three defining characteristics of eco-technology are, artificial ecosystems, media archaeology, and the cultural imaginary through science fiction. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Below the Radar. We're really excited to have Derek Woods with us today. Welcome, Derek. Thank you. And thanks so much for having me. I also really appreciate the work that Am Johal does in Vancouver to build intellectual community and make space for ideas that have a lot of political relevance. I'm going to slip you a hundred bucks under the table yeah. right now. Thank you for the props. <laughs> Heartfelt. I've been watching it from a distance. I've I'm from Vancouver. I lived here. I grew up on Vancouver Island, lived in Vancouver for 10 years, and then moved to the States, Texas, New England. So I haven't been able to attend as many things as I'd like, but I've been seeing them from afar. Was it Duncan that you grew up? That's right. Yeah, Yeah. Duncan. The pride and joy of Duncan, BC. That's right. Well, Derek, you're going to be doing a postdoc right now or just finishing one up at uh, Dartmouth College as a postdoctoral fellow, but we'll be moving into a role as an assistant professor of media studies at UBC. Wondering if you can talk a little bit about the work that you were doing on your doctoral research. Sure, absolutely. And I'm writing a book now coming out of that dissertation project. I've been revising it over the course of this postdoctoral fellowship. It's been a nice one. It's given me a lot of time to write and sit alone in small town, New Hampshire, which is where Dartmouth College is located. So um, yeah, this work initially, I guess, came out of the fact that I started my undergrad studies in forestry. So I was always interested in environmentalism, ecological questions. You know, I, I even worked for logging companies around Williams Lake, where you're from. And over time, I was interested in going into the sciences, but it sort of didn't work out for the kind of writing I wanted to do more qualitative, more philosophical. So I transitioned into English departments and ended up working on this project about eco-technology or green technology. And it's really kind of involved with three meanings of that term. And, you know, the first meaning is eco-technology in the sense of artificial ecosystems and the Earth's climate is now something that's become artificial. And that's fairly standard for anyone who's been following climate change or this debate about the Anthropocene concept, the idea that now there's nothing purely natural left kind of on, on planet Earth in the biosphere. So the first sense of ecotechnology is to try to figure out what we mean when we describe these kinds of small-scale ecosystems or the large scale of the climate as artificial. And what kind of technology is that? It's interesting as you move from the sciences into English or media studies or what some people call the energy humanities to some degree, there's distinctions these various disciplines have as they try to think through these questions. I've done work in media philosophy. I'm wondering how you would nuance sort of these perspectives, you know, coming out of English or rhetoric and into media theory and how these disciplines look at it slightly differently. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I I think that media theory, 
if you look at figures like Marshall McLuhan, even really started from literary studies. And a lot of the major media theorists were trained at some point as literary critics. So that background is always there. And I find my literary training helpful, even when I talk about technologies that have nothing to do with fiction or poetry. But the way I've been, I've been kind of nuancing it for myself is really to say that, okay, there's a topic, which is a general topic that's of concern to everyone. And that is sort of environmental questions, right? Climate change. But then there's a set of methods. And one of the methods comes out of media studies called media archaeology, right? And it's about looking at the conceptual frameworks and the technologies that have influenced them and how those conceptual frameworks, which you know, are never completely abstract, they're kind of embedded in the technologies we use, how those become conditions of possibility for later scientific discourses. That's part of what I'm going to talk about today when it comes to cybernetics as a background for earth system science. So in the realm of media archaeology that you mentioned, who have you been influenced by in your own thinking? Oh, um, in the realm of media? In terms of media archaeology oh, approaches right. to ecological questions in that history and tradition, are there particular thinkers that you've been inspired or interested by or are in sort of conversation or combating in some way? Absolutely, yeah. So I, it's... It's a long history. I've learned a lot from the work of Catherine Hales and other people who have worked on cybernetics. Hales and then also scholars like Lily Kay and Evelyn Fox Keller, scholars coming out of feminist science studies who have been interested in showing just how influential cybernetics and information theory, those things are intertwined, um, were on biology as a science, even just on the notion that DNA is information. So some of their work on cybernetics, which you know, was kind of going on in the 80s and 90s, is really important, been really important for me to be in dialogue with as I start to write about a different object of study, which is not so much organisms and genes, but you know, ecosystems and the climate. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the book that you're working on that will be coming out soon, and I assume it's began at least with the dissertation mm -hmm. and wondering what you were attempting to do with the project. Yeah, so I'm planning to publish this as a book, but still in the works, however. So we'll see when it comes out exactly. I'm trying to finish it this year. Yeah, yeah a book called What is Ecotechnology? That's the title I'm using right now. Because to go back to this earlier point, to answer that question, you kind of need three meanings, right? So the first one is artificial ecosystems and the Earth system. The second one is archaeological. It's about the conditions of possibility for some of these scientific concepts, especially going back to cybernetics. And then the third one is uh, has to do with the cultural imaginary, right? And for me, that's mostly in science fiction, the work of writers like Octavia Butler, Kim Stanley Robinson, and others who are less well-known and then of filmmakers as well. For example, I've been writing about Bong Joon-ho's film Snowpiercer because it represents kind of a closed artificial ecosystem. And so it's in these texts that you see kind of flesh put on the bones of this ecological worldview that we really get from ecology's engagement with cybernetics in the 20th century. And how would you sort of walk through these different kind of worldviews of people who are approaching the ecological question within these fields? It's a difficult question. It's a big one, but I'd like to go back to 
Arthur G. Tansley, who coined the term ecosystem in 1935. And if it's a question of worldview, then he was trying to critique the work of a series of organicist ecologists. Um, Frederick Clements in the United States, who was very influential in the early 20th century, and then also Jan Smuts in South Africa and some of his students. These were organicists in the sense that they saw the form of order that, say, a forest has, you know, forest as what we would now call an ecosystem. They saw that order as basically just an organism at another scale. So the trees are organs in the body of the forest, which is also an organism, right? A superorganism. That was a very influential idea then, and in some ways it continues to be now. But when Tansley coined the term ecosystem, he was saying, okay, we've gone too far with this metaphor. Organicism imagines that even the kind of non-living processes of the atmosphere, of rocks weathering and so forth, are organic in some way. And the inorganic needs to be incorporated into our idea of how these systems work. So that was where he was going with that critique. At risk of continuing to go on on and on about that, I'll kind of stop. But you can say that the ecosystem concept, which later influences the Earth system, Gaia theory, has always been in tension with this notion of the superorganism, trying to do away with it, but then it comes back as the return of the repressed over and over. Now, there are these terms that come up through different fields that are part of kind of sense-making of the type of crisis that we're trying to grapple with, and in many ways it can be viewed as an existential crisis, but there have been others in human civilization. Uh, Nuclear weapons was a big one post-Second World War in terms of how to address and deal with something that could possibly bring up the end of humanity or asteroids hitting the Earth or something of that nature. And there's a question of duration that comes up around the ecological crisis. So in as much as we may be in a crisis or some of us think that we're in a crisis, the impacts and effects happen over a slower period of time or the release of carbon lasts beyond our own lifetimes, that kind of disconnection between the human body and its impacts and its relation to technologies. And terms come up like the Anthropocene is a very popular one. There have been a lot of critiques of it from various places. And I'm wondering how you approach the term of the problematic term, I guess, of the yeah. of the Anthropocene. That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> I think I do think a lot about this. This actually goes back well to Tansley and the ecosystem in a certain way, because with any ecological concept, like with the Anthropocene, like the way I see it is that you have to have a kind of built-in critique focused on especially the politics of race, right? So if you go back to Jan Smuts in South Africa, who actually coined the term holism, very important for the history of ecological thought. Smuts was also one of the architects of apartheid. He was a South African general who waged war in South Africa in the early 20th century and who thought that his idea of the kind of perfectly balanced organic community suggested that black and white people had to live separately. So this segregationist policy for him flowed from his ideas about the superorganism. There's been some work about that in kind of the history of science, which I think is really important. And some of these critiques kind of continue into the present. So with the Anthropocene, the biggest problem that people have with the concept is that it kind of universalizes the human species. And, And rather than think 
what we mean by species kind of in a more complex way. It just kind of reasserts a kind of liberal humanism. Everyone's the same, but it reasserts that kind of liberal humanism where you know we all kind of exist on a level playing field as humans in the form of this claim that humans have become a geological force. And so most of the critiques have wanted to ask, like, which humans? Wasn't it colonialism that really drove the transformation of the Earth system by bringing plants and animals from Europe to America and back to Europe as well, by kind of driving the plantation system that fed into the industrial factory system and released massive amounts of fossil fuels. It's not like everyone has equal responsibility for that. And people have come up with terms like capitalocene yeah. to billionaireocene to recent book, Billion Black Anthropocenes, mm -hmm. that look at the disproportionate roles that particular people have played in the release of CO2 emissions that have caused the situation that we're in, both from a colonial point of view, but also a capitalist point of view, certain modes of production, particular areas, particular companies as well. And Exxon. <laughs> yeah. And some of these companies having larger GDPs than some nation states. Mm -hmm. So I think in some sense, though, it comes out of a particular scientific uh, naming that certainly caused a major debate in the humanities around yeah. the name. Because I guess this question of like, who does what in the naming and how does it roll out? Who does it leave out? Mm -hmm. How does it attempt to reorder in some ways, which brings up questions of power, I suppose. Right. And questions of narrative related to those questions of power, because you know, the Anthropocene provides us with really a grand narrative in the sense that Lyotard used to have it, you know, a narrative that purports to explain everything about human history in a way, and a narrative that is difficult to get outside of because its form of meaning is so close. I mean, Lyotard would also have said that about Marxism as well, right? All of history can be explained in terms of class struggle. In the Anthropocene, human history is explained in terms of the evolution of this particular primate species, which then gradually takes on the ability to reshape the Earth system. And then in a moment of epochal rupture, suddenly becomes able to recognize that it's doing that and perhaps even to guide that process so that we come to master the climate in the Earth system. And you know, these are all components, not things I'm making up, but components of the scientific and engineering literature around the Anthropocene. Now, in many ecological questions, there seems to be these themes around the need or the desire to decenter the human subject in some type of way. And I'm wondering how you approach the question of the more than human world, mm -hmm. that if we're talking about world systems and science systems and various types of living organisms, how do we think the more than human related to this question of ecological crisis? Yeah, it's a big one. I can tie it back into kind of how I specifically deal with the Anthropocene concept in my work. And it's changed a bit over time, uh, say over the last six years since I first started publishing about it. And I think interestingly, you know, you you can say that the the subject of the Anthropocene, like the, the Anthropos who's driving these changes is not recognizably human in a certain way. You can say that it's an assemblage to draw on kind of the language of Deleuze and Guattari as kind of social theorists, that it's a, an assemblage of 
created by relations among many different entities that emerges as in its own level of complexity and that that assemblage has particular agency. So I think you can include cows and corn and species that you know, humans have kind of co-evolved with and manipulated agriculturally in this subject. So to imagine that the subject of the Anthropocene looks like a human being at our scale in, you know, in the way that I recognize you as a human sitting across from me doesn't really get at this kind of agro-industrial cybernetic large-scale assemblage, which we don't seem to have very much control over. Sometimes I think of it in terms of the famous opening scene from The War of the Worlds from that H.G. Wells novel, where um, you know, the idea is that you know, humans had been developing modern science and looking at microbes through microscopes, realizing that there was this smaller world and placing ourselves at the top of the great chain of being. But then little did we know that these aliens were looking at us just the way we look at the microbes. So there's a scale shift there. And I think you could read that kind of terraforming novel in Anthropocene terms as a sort of misrecognition. You know, we see ourselves gazing down from that larger scale, but we can't recognize ourselves in this assemblage. Now, in terms of what you call the kind of political imaginary and sort of the role of science fiction or trying to read through popular culture and literature, these types of questions, you referenced a few of these authors, Octavia Butler, Kim Stanley Robinson. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that part of your project. Sure, absolutely. Butler is a good example. You know, I think her work is uniquely biopolitical, especially in the sense that it's ambivalent. It doesn't give us an easy choice in this novel about an alien species that comes to rescue humans from an earth that's been destroyed by nuclear war. It doesn't give you an easy choice whether it's better to resist those aliens or to go along with them and ultimately hybridize with them. It's kind of a novel about symbiosis. And so just as kind of initial points about it, I like that ambivalence and also the fact that a lot of science study scholars have read it over the years. So especially most famously Donna Haraway for her, this kind of hybridity of the humans mixing symbiotically with the aliens in Butler's work gets at the problems with you know, politics of purity in the post-colonial era. And for her writing in the 80s and 90s, it was a way of talking about kind of ethnic and racial hybridity as well and evaluating that over racial purity. But then when you shift from reading it as a novel about organisms to one about kind of ecosystems, the setting of this novel is often this kind of organic spaceship that the aliens come in on and that they, that they nurture the humans they've rescued on before sending them back to Earth. And what interests me about this is the way she writes about it as something that's absolutely closed as a kind of organism or system that actually often doesn't seem organic at all, which is completely closed to the outside. That's how it's able to move through space. And so I think like in a time when we get really used to hearing that ecological thought is about openness and relationality with other species, that ecology means that everything is connected. You also have these literatures where people, or writers like Butler are really articulating a limit case of ecological thought, which I think is super important to it, and also to ecopolitics, but which is based on this absolute closure. So I've been interested in trying to 
figure out what that means. <laughs> yeah, what do you sort of extract and pull out of the work of Kim Stanley Robinson? Because he's been writing over such a long period of time in various ways from terraforming Mars to his more recent work. But how do right. you read into it? Yeah, well, a couple of different things. One thing is that in science fiction and especially in his work, you know, it's very clear in his work, there is a kind of dynamic relationship between two eco-technologies, is what I like to call them. You know, one is kind of the, the terrarium or sort of artificial closed ecosystem. And that's the term Kim Stanley Robinson likes to use when he talks about humans living inside asteroids in some kind of post-capitalist solar system future, like in 2312, a more recent novel. So you have the terrarium as an enclosed ecological space, but then you also have terraforming as something that's exposed, something that is an entire artificial biosphere wrapped around a planet that didn't have one before. You know, whereas the terraforming is about closure, balance, maintaining equilibrium, which comes with its own set of politics. Terraforming is much more chaotic, dynamic. And yet, despite the difference between them, they often figure one another, not just in science fiction, but elsewhere. So Biosphere 2, for example, in Arizona, five-acre gigantic closed ecosystem project that was actually built. Biosphere 2 is meant to be a model for the Earth system. It's meant to be a kind of Gaian experimental lab that scientists can manipulate, even though it exists at such a small scale <laughs> relative to... Now, you're also, in your work, you're considering some films as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So especially these closed ecosystem films, you've got Logan's Run is a famous one, right? <laughs> Silent Running is another kind of 70s sci-fi where you have a few astronauts tending to the Earth's last biodiversity in these floating spaceship domes, one of whom decides that it's better to preserve the plants than the other humans. And then Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer that I mentioned earlier has been a really important one. Now, does your work, now that you're going to be teaching in media theory as well, does your work engage with some German media theorists as well related to questions of ecology? It does, absolutely, yeah. Uh, quite a few. So Eric Horl is one who I've been reading, an interesting collection for people who like this kind of intersection of ecology and media theory is a book called General Ecology. Uh, this is Horl. You know, I have some hesitations about it because his, his idea of ecology is very much focused on the kind of relational, everything is connected model. Yeah, yeah. I have hesitations on Kittler too. Kittler, yeah. So we've got <laughs> Kittler. <laughs> Kittler's hard to avoid if you yeah. read German media theory. <laughs> and yeah, his, his work's interesting, but it's hard not to think that what Kittler envisions is technology kind of taking over and just casting humans aside. So politically, I'm not sure he gives us very much to latch on to, even if he was really innovative in the way that he kind of combined Foucault and McLuhan, in a sense. Do you at all go through the work of Peter Sloterdijk at all? I do. I read some of his work as well, especially when it comes to the terrarium. You know, he is one of the few people who's interested in these kind of artificial atmospheres he doesn't talk very much about the history of ecology as a science, but he uh, understands the importance of something like Biosphere 2 for illustrating. He calls it an absolute island for illustrating kind of a, a limit case of ecological closure. 
talks about that in phones. Do you, in your work, ever um, go through, this would have been four or five years ago, it was kind of a thing for maybe 18 or 20 months around the accelerationism sort of discussions that predominantly in the art world is where it really circulated, but involved a number of theorists, but your kind of read on some of that writing. Yeah, I've read some, Nick Land and uh, Nick Cernicek. <laughs> um, I can't figure out how to pronounce his name properly, but... I'm against it. I mean, I'm against accelerationism. That's sort of the short, the short answer. I'm the kind of environmentalist who does think that degrowth and deceleration might be possible, even inevitable at some point. And I also think that accelerationism is very wedded to the idea that history has a direction. In that sense, it remains very Hegelian in its Marxism. We are moving towards a necessary shift away from capitalist social relations that could be global. And that's why we need to accelerate capitalism. It's deterritorialization of everything local, everything slow, forms of production that remain outside of the abstraction of exchange in the global financial markets. You know, their, their idea is to push past those forms of resistance. But I, it seems too close to me to a sort of end of history model. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can let us know when you think that your book will be coming out. Oh, it should be, I'm, I'm guessing uh, 2021. Okay. That's kind of my goal. You know, I'm, I'm finishing it now during this postdoc before I start working at UBC and teaching and going to meetings, uh, all of which will be exciting, but leave less writing time. Yeah, absolutely. So finish that manuscript, start circulating it. But then it really depends on the reviewers and how much they love or hate it. So, Yeah, yeah you'll get through it. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining us, Derek. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Below the Radar to hear from our guest, Derek Woods. We've linked to some of Derek's writing in the show notes of today's episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar. Below the Radar.